Uh, with that, uh, let's uh, turn our attention now to the book of Ephesians. We are moving into chapter 2. Uh, where Paul is beginning a bit of a section in this book where he is going to contrast uh, these believers. He's talking to the Ephesian believers. He's going to contrast uh, their life before Christ with their life in Christ. And we're going to see this kind of flow uh, past the, into the next few weeks, really, this, this thing that Paul is getting at. But we're going to find, I believe, that as he outlines these things and explains these differences, that the realities of life before Christ and life in Christ are so opposite from each other. They're like night and day difference. Literally, as Paul is going to put it, uh, here at the beginning of chapter 2, it's, it is a life and death kind of difference. There, there's no true comparison or overlap. And so uh, what we're going to see this week and next week is that Paul's got some good news for us, and he's got some bad news for us. Now, those of you who are good news first kind of people, I apologize. You're going to have to roll with it because Paul assumed that we wanted the bad news first. Uh, so we're going to today get to, to spend some time in just a short passage, three verses that... Uh, frankly, are, are, are difficult. Uh, they're challenging. They're the kind of uh, passage that uh, you don't always look forward to preaching on or talking about. But nevertheless, it's in God's Word. And so uh, we're going to spend some time there today uh, and talk about it, and then we'll get into uh, more of the good news next week. So make sure if you're here this week, you're going to want to make sure you come back next week also so you get the, the full picture. So that's how we get you. So we'll see you next Sunday as well. All right. Um, like we did in Ephesians 1, uh, we're going to, just for context sake, we're going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, so that we get the good news and bad news all in one lump, so we kind of see where we're at, and then we'll, we'll talk just about the first three verses today. So Paul writes this, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Bad news. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's, uh, let's pray uh, before we dive into this that God would lead us through the moments ahead. Father, we do come before you, and uh, we are grateful for the whole counsel of your word, uh, even the difficult passages. Lord, as we'll learn today how the sobering reminder that Paul gives us is is so helpful for us in understanding the glories and truths of the life that you've given us in Christ. So, Father, I ask in the, in the moments ahead, as we look at these three challenging verses, 
uh, that you would soften our hearts to be reminded of these truths, that you would uh, open our hearts to receive them, or that you would speak uh, through me, that your truths from your word would go forth, and not just my own ideas or my own uh, thoughts. Uh, Lord, may you be honored and glorified and lifted up in all that we say and do as we gather together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Not a super happy, flowery passage uh, that we get to deal with today in these first three verses, but uh, I want to set a little bit of the stage, or if you will, the kind of the context for what Paul's doing here. Um, and, and part of that is, is understanding Paul's purpose. Why, why is he writing about this? Why does Paul bring up these things like your death or your being dead in your trespasses and sins? Why, why does he talk about these passions of our flesh that we once lived in and that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind? I mean, those, those are kind of just in your face kind of words. But the reason that he's doing it, and I want to be very clear on this, right now Paul's purpose is not pointing the finger at outsiders to the church or unbelievers. Paul's actually, he's pointing the, his finger at believers. He said, you, you Christians, you believers, this, this was you. This was you. And, and his purpose in doing that is not to kind of slap you over the head with a two-by-four and say, man, let me make you feel horrible about yourself. His purpose is to set a context for what he's going to get into verses 4 through 10. So if you will, um, Jake, we got a picture of a, of a, to throw up on the screen. What Paul's doing is he's kind of painting in contrast here, right? So just like in this picture, the, the photographer, whoever it is who, who put this together, decided to, in order to draw out the beauty of the flower, set it in a backdrop of black and white. So that, not so that as you look at it, you're drawn to the petals on the side and the background of the picture. They do this so that as you look at the picture, your gaze would be fixed on the flower itself. The contrast helps do that. And that's what Paul's doing here. It's in essence, he's painting with the, the black and white backdrop to show, hey, here's, here's the grim and sobering reality of your life before you were saved. Before you were in Christ, this is who you were. And it's not full of good news, but the purpose of it is to be held in tandem with next week's passage, 4 through 10. Now that's where Paul is going to say, hey, now here's the, the bright and vibrant and beautiful colors. But before we get to that, it's helpful for us to stop and to, to kind of sit in, in that backdrop and understand, well, what's, what's Paul actually have to say? What, what's he getting into with us about this? And that's where you start to see this connection. If you looked at verse 1, he says, you were dead. Uh, he's going to bring that back up again in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive, right? So he ties these, these things together, saying, you were, but now. And that's why we're going to kind of uh, close today's message out and pick up next week with those two really, really amazing words at the beginning of verse 4. But God. Right? So as we talk through this uh, today, um, I, I don't want us to just come and, and feel like Paul's smashing over the head with a two-by-four. But that doesn't mean that we should be dismissive of his of what he's saying it's still serious it's still something that we should let sink in because in all reality i think what he's getting is the more this sinks in the more we understand truly who we were the more we understand 
who we are now in Christ. The two go hand in hand with each other. And so what Paul does effectively is he kind of, he's going to give us the autopsy report on your spiritual deadness. In essence, he's going, he's saying to these believers, listen, you were dead. You were the one on the table. Here's the condition of your soul. And I'm going to tell you about that. Okay, and he offers us the, the autopsy report on your spiritual deadness before Christ. It's not the full story, but it's where you were at. And so as he gets into it, we're going to see that if you were to kind of put some labels to it, your time of death, as the scriptures teach, if you were to go that route, was birth. When you were born, you were born dead, spiritually speaking. That's why you may be flashing back a little bit. Those are, who are familiar with Jesus and Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and uh, talking about need, the need to be born again. And Nicodemus, how, how can a man be, go back into his mother's womb? That doesn't make sense. And Jesus is like, there's a, there's a spiritual component to this. So we're born physically alive. We're born spiritually dead. And then the cause of death, as we see right there in verse 1, is your trespasses and your sins. So as you look at this report on your spiritual life, number one, you were dead in your sins. Christian, before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, the question becomes, well, what, what exactly does that mean? We talk about being spiritually dead. What, what does that mean for us? Now, that, that may take us in all kinds of different directions, but in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays in verse 3 that we may know eternal life, and he says eternal life is what? That we might know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. So Jesus says, listen, you, eternal life is knowing God. So if you were to take the opposite of eternal life, knowing God would be what? Not knowing God. And that, the implication of that has, is ripple effects that go very wide. And we'll talk maybe about some of those things, but spiritual death, therefore, is Paul saying, you did not even know God. You didn't know him. You didn't, you didn't know Jesus. And later in chapter 2, he's speaking to Gentile believers, says, you guys were the ones, you were far off. You were the ones without hope, without God in the world. That Gentile believers, guess who that involves? Us. Even us. Now, certainly Gentiles knew of God. There were plenty of Gentiles that we knew, we know knew of God. Word travel, especially you look in the Old Testament, oh, we, we've heard about the God of the Israelites, all that he's doing. They, they knew of God, they knew about God, but they didn't actually know God. And it, sometimes you wonder, you wonder how many people today know about God? How many people today maybe know of God? and are deceived into thinking that that means that they know God. When all the while they're going on living in the current state of spiritual death. It's humbling to think about. Spiritual death is not knowing God, but it also means that you were helpless and you were hopeless on your own. If you were dead, that means you had no ability to bring yourself life. 
Now, Paul's not using some idiom as we might use, say, oh, yeah, you're, you're dead, man. Like, you, you made a mistake. You're dead. You know, like, we talk like that sometimes. Or when we were kids, you know, you're, with your siblings, you might have talked like that. Oh, mom's going to kill you. You know, you're dead. That's not how Paul's talking. He, he's using a word that they used in reference literally to a corpse, a person who was without life. That's the context that Paul's bringing up here. He's in as, as real as it gets. He says, spiritually speaking, you had no life in you. you. You were in a very real sense, lifeless and dead, meaning you had no ability in and of yourself to give yourself life. Because not to, not to be morbid or morose or crude in any way, shape or form. But there's something that... that doesn't sit easy with us when you go to a funeral and you see someone in a casket it's like in that moment especially when you when it's somebody that you knew and you loved and you're confronted with the realities that they were once full of life and personality and here it's just it's an empty corpse of who that person was that you knew and paul's saying you were that corpse spiritually speaking you were a corpse it's a raw deal that paul's bringing up here you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Therefore, you did not just need medicine. You didn't just need assistance. You didn't just need care. You needed life. And you needed somebody else to give it to you. But the cause of your death, as he goes back to, was your trespasses and your sins. So we could say, listen, if you're going to kind of walk through this with me, you were dead and your trespasses and sins meant you were, number one, you were disobedient to God. You were disobedient to God. Now, Paul uses those two words, trespasses and sins. And, and for, for us, I, I don't want to overanalyze it because I think it comes out to kind of the same ending. But we, we take trespasses and sins, we're like, well, he's just saying the same thing twice. Like they're synonymous with each other, but there's some, there's some unique connotations to it. It's kind of like we might use things like uh, fun and leisure, right? They're similar, but there's some some specifics that go into each one we might use words like success and the chicago bears right and these totally synonymous things with each other they mean the same exact thing but you have to nuance some stuff a little bit to know what we're talking about <laughs> just sit with that for another season or two and we'll see where we're at all right give it time we'll see how that one ages bill we'll see how it ages but Paul gets into this, and, and, and some of the nuance behind the, these two words, when he uses uh, this idea of trespass, I mean, literally think trespassing. That, that's where we get it, right? And, and what's trespassing? A, a boundary line has been set, and somebody has crossed the boundary line. And that's, in essence, what Paul's saying. In your trespasses, in your crossing the line, you are dead. You're dead in your sins. In your sins is uh, now think, uh, think archery or, or shooting. We'll go shooting because that's, that's what people like to do today. Uh, you, go to, you go to the, the shooting range and you set up a target downrange and you shoot at it. And if you're like me, you missed the bullseye. And uh, the word that Paul uses here, sin, is actually that variance of which you missed the bullseye. That, that's where we come up with the word sin. That's what sin is, missing the mark coming up short so paul in essence what he's doing this is why i say you kind of come to the same conclusion in your overstepping and you're falling short you have utterly found yourself dead you've got nothing and you're responsible for it and that's the way you lived your life 
That was the way I lived my life. Crossing the line and altogether coming up short. He says that was uh, the way in which you once walked there in, uh, in verse 2. And he says, you're following the course of this world. And then you start to say, well, what, 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 what's that all about? You say, okay, you know, you're dead. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. But now Paul is talking about the course of the world. He's talking about this prince of the power of the air, this spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's Paul getting at? Because it's sounding like maybe I'm not as guilty as you might think I am because there's other, you know, influences at play here. In essence, what Paul is speaking to is that you and I have followed the same pattern that happened in the garden. If you were to go all the way back to the very beginning. You were disobedient to God, and you've been deceived by the devil. Now, no doubt when uh, there's almost a unanimous agreement that the person, that, that's pe- prince of the power of the air, that Paul is speaking about is the devil himself. The scriptures speak of the, the devil having influence and power in, in this age. He's, he's talking about that, but, but I want to... I want to clarify a couple of things because we might jump to some conclusions there that may not be altogether fair. Paul doesn't necessarily mean that the devil himself has come and sat on your shoulder and deceived you and came up with some sort of plan of deception in your life. I think that gives more credit than the devil is due. Why? The devil's not God. Agreed? The devil is in subjection to God. He doesn't share equal power with God. He doesn't share equal authority with God. There are attributes of which only apply to God. Namely, one of them being that God alone is omnipresent or all present in all places. The devil is not. The devil then is only, as you and I are, in one place at one time. These demons, all that, very real. The book of Ephesians talks a deal about this stuff. But we need to be careful not to make more of the devil than's due to the devil. We also shouldn't make less of the devil. We shouldn't make less of our enemy. It's to be taken seriously, but not elevated to a place of fear. God has given more power through his spirit than the devil has. He'll talk about that at the end of the book, Ephesians chapter 6. But I just want us to be careful that when Paul's talking about this, what he's getting at more is that there are systems in place that the devil rules over. That's what he's getting at. You have followed the course of this world. In other words, you have acted as the rest of the world acts. Paul doesn't leave this in a place that we can point and say, see, it wasn't my fault. He puts the onus on us. We followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's, that's my responsibility. And so as it turns out, my mom was right when I was growing up when she said, you're responsible for your own actions. As much as I always want to say, well, it was, it was Brett, it was Zach, it was my friend. She's like, no, you're the one who chose to do what you did. And that's what Paul is saying. It is your responsibility. You have brought yourself to the place of doing that. And that's how the scriptures paint these things out to be. 
And so we, we follow in that same pattern as, as in, in the garden, because if you remember back in the beginning in Genesis, how did it go? The devil started to tempt and to, to deceive. And so we see it in our world today where now people are deceived into believing perhaps maybe God doesn't even exist at all. Whatever means he may use. Some people are deceived into believing the wrong things about God. That God isn't who he said he really is. That God isn't the God of the Bible at all. It's some other God. It's, it's some other faith that's out there that... And so if the devil can deceive us into following those different things, great. Some people are deceived into thinking that they're gods. Same thing. In the garden, the serpent said to Eve, did God actually say? Oh, don't we see that happening today? Oh, but does the Bible actually say? Does God's word actually talk about? The devil, the serpent says to Eve, oh, but you'll be like God. And where is so much of the world today? God's into themselves. And that's how scriptures have laid this out. And one, uh, one commentator we referenced in our small group study this week, if you had a chance to look at that. His name is Klein Snodgrass, um, and he, he put it this way, and I really, really appreciate it. He said, the devil's standing, guys, is limited. He is not the marquee player. Most of us do evil well enough by ourselves. Humbling. Sobering. But isn't that how the book of James paints it? James chapter 1 talks about this temptation and sin, and he kind of talks through that a little bit, and he says uh, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is what? Dragged, kicking and screaming against his will to go do something? Forced against his will to deny God and do his own thing? No. When he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The responsibility was mine. The responsibility was yours. It's how the scriptures have laid it out. So while you may have been deceived, while you were deceived by the animal, the enemy, you have not been absolved from the responsibility, the same way that Adam and Eve were not absolved of the responsibility in the garden. Same pattern still going on even today because the reality is as Paul gets into in verse 3 you were driven by your own selfishness it wasn't you going kicking and screaming it was you doing exactly what you wanted to do verse 3 you, you know, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind you were doing you and the result of that God said is you were dead it brought about your own spiritual death. Now, if you were to turn the page, you remember the last couple of weeks, we keep turning the page over to Galatians chapter 5. <laughs> so we're going to do that again, all right, just for tradition's sake. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit, but in the same passage, Paul speaks of the works of the flesh. Starting in verse 
19, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I get it, Paul. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I'm sure, I'm sure that as we look at that list, as you look at that list, you can say, that one's not really me, that one's not me, but I think if you're honest, I know if I'm honest, I see myself in that list. Who I was. Apart from Christ. This is who we were. In short, Paul's point is this, verse 3, that prior to Christ, you loved yourself first, you served yourself first, you listened to yourself first, you followed yourself first, you were God to yourself. Before coming to a place where you praise and worship the living God, you still worshiped a God, but you were that God And it didn't bode so well for you. So we remember that. And we live in a day in which that that should give us a reason to have compassion for those who are still living in that day. 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes to a young pastor, right? Timothy's a young guy, he's trained up, he's, he's sent him to be a pastor, and, and here Paul writes to him and he talks about, uh, gives him some advice for his pastoring, and he says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Sorry, guys ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And you sit there and you're like, when did he write this? When did Paul write about this? So, so long ago. And what happens? What do these people do? He tells them that later in chapter 4, he says, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they're going to do what? They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, what Paul's saying is, you know what? People aren't going to like to hear it how it is. Paul has no problem with saying it how it is, hence verses 1 through 3. He says, the day is going to come when people will just go and they'll find people who are going to tell them everything they want to hear. Will justify their own passions, their own desires, because the reality at the, at the base of the human heart is this. We don't, by nature, want to give up our nature. By nature, we want our passions, but there has to be somebody who comes in and says, I'm going to replace those. I'm going to change you. I'm going to save you from out of that. And the result of us being in that state, as Paul concludes it, is that we were by nature children of wrath. So you were dead, you weren't sick, you were dead, which means dead, not weakened, not sick, dead, and you were deserving of God's wrath. And this is where it gets maybe especially uncomfortable for some. Because you were deserving of God's wrath 
like the rest of mankind. Everybody. Everybody. All people are deserving of God's wrath. That can be a hard pill to swallow at times. Now you'll notice he says, you were by nature, not consequence, not choice. You were by nature children of wrath. That's where, you know, I mentioned earlier, you were born sinner, you were by nature a sinner. We were by nature deserving of God's wrath. But the question becomes that so many people will ask, what about all those good people? You know, the the nice ones, the kind ones, the compassionate ones. What about all the the nice people? Are Are they really children of wrath? I mean, I think back, I'd like to say I was a pretty good guy before I came to saving faith in Christ. I was a rule follower. I didn't cause trouble. I was always nice to people. I was, I, was, I was a pretty decent dude. I was a child of wrath. I don't know what all your background is. Maybe some of you guys have a little fiery back, more fiery background than I did. Scriptures say we all were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Is that really fair? Isaiah chapter 64 says each of our good deeds is merely a filthy rag. And let me just, without getting into it too much, let me just say this. Isaiah is not talking about your shop rags. Isaiah is talking about an uncleanness that would separate us from fellowship with God and fellowship with others. An uncleanness that severs that relationship. It breaks our relationship with other people. And he says, even our good deeds are but filthy rags. How does that make sense? Aren't there a lot of people doing great things for our community? Great things for humanity, the world? What do you make of it? Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can slap a band-aid on a pig and it's still a pig. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is why people get uncomfortable with this. Especially in a, in a Western culture that we, we kind of operate on a guilt and non-guilt basis and we're like, no, I'm a, I'm a good person. I have a brother from a shame and honor background. Different thinking than us. Much of the pushback against Christianity comes to a passage like this. What kind of God must he be to tell me that I can't be me? What kind of faith would do that? Because people don't want to give up their passions. They don't want to change that part of verse 3. That in some ways it's unnatural. And so what is the church? What happens in the church? We run the risk and have run the risk of recognizing that it's uncomfortable and that to some people it turns them off. So to compensate, sometimes the, the church has eased up on talking about God's wrath has lightened it in talking about sin. 
and focus the conversation about the gospel just about around God's love and his acceptance and his mercy and his grace. And then over time, God's wrath and his justice are slowly just kind of pushed out of the conversation about God at all. Yet while it's uncomfortable to talk about, I think it's a necessary thing to talk about. I think there's a reason that Paul brings it up first. Before he gets into everything else, I think there's a reason he gets into this. Because if you take God's wrath out of the picture, what's left? What are you left with if there is no wrath of God? If he's not a just God, if he is not a wrathful God, then what's left? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, play it out in your head. If God, if, if there's no wrath, well, Romans chapter 1 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So if his wrath doesn't exist, then there is no true hope for ultimate justice. Justice is left in the hands of men. We see how well that goes most of the time. As a matter of fact, if you take God's wrath out of the equation, sin's really not that big of a deal anymore, is it? Because now it's like God becomes some cosmic pushover with no backbone that sits up in heaven and is like, yeah, you guys, I mean, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid the creator of the universe offend somebody. Heaven forbid he offend me and call me out and say, Jeremy, you're not walking as I have called you to walk. You take God's wrath out of the equation and suddenly Christianity kind of falls apart. There's no gospel. Jesus died for nothing because there's no due and just retribution for sin. You just go on and do your thing. God's wrath's important. And I would argue, I would argue that perhaps God's love and his grace and his mercy are best shown in view of his wrath. If you've never heard of, of the guy, uh, there's a preacher that I enjoy listening to from time to time. His name is Paul Washer, and you can uh, look him up. He's got some good stuff out there. And, and he talked kind of along these lines, and he brought up a really great point with the, the story of, of Jacob and Esau. You guys remember Jacob and Esau, the twins, uh, back in, in Genesis? And uh, Malachi chapter 1, get this, Jake, you can throw it up on the screen. Malachi chapter 1 says that, God speaking, says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved me? And the Lord responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It's kind of interesting. So then the question becomes, what does that mean? A question is posed to God, how, how have you loved us? And God gives an answer that essentially says, my love is demonstrated in contrast, right? Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. So the question then becomes, well, how is it that God showed his hatred toward Esau? How is it that God showed his love toward Jacob? It might help paint the picture for us a little bit. 
If you look at Esau, if you remember the story, right? Esau sold his birthright uh, to Jacob for a cup of soup. Must have been some good soup, but um, gave everything up for a cup of soup. He still had some promises that were made to him. Uh, Isaac still blessed him. And uh, we find ourselves in, in this place where, where these promises are given, and, and, and God in time fulfills all of those promises that were given to Esau. He made him wealthy. He had great possessions, great prosperity. He, he made his descendants numerous. He became a great nation. It would seem certainly on the surface like God blessed Esau, right? So much so that even years later as Jacob would go to meet him, Jacob's sending flocks and herds ahead of him because he's scared of his brother. It's not like he's just some guy living in the wilderness that's got nothing. He, he, he's to be feared in the eyes of Jacob. Now sure, they've got some history there. So how did God show his wrath? How did God show his hatred toward Esau? God let Esau be Esau. Here you go. You go and be you. He let Esau think like Esau wanted to think. He let Esau be how Esau wanted to be. He let Esau do what Esau wanted to do. And what? All to his own destruction. And what does Paul say we were? Who we were? Before coming to Christ, we were the ones who lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You want to go back to uh, Romans chapter 1. Paul follows that train of thought, talking about God's wrath down, and later he says, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. What? Therefore, God gave them up in the, pa in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So God's wrath right now on the surface may seem like blessing. You do you. You think the way you want to think. You live the way you want to live. You pursue the passions of your own flesh to your own destruction. But what about Jacob? How did God show his love toward Jacob? dude had a rough life. God wrestled with him. God chipped away at him. He didn't let Jacob be Jacob. He changed his whole identity. He worked at his life, his character. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines the one he loves. Now I know we think of discipline oftentimes as punishment. But he disciplines in the sense that he is going to change you. He will not let you be you. He's going to chip away. He might bring circumstances, he might bring people. He might bring struggles. That's why James, that's why Romans, they all talk about we can rejoice in those trials. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we can, we can trust that God's doing a work. 
But God is changing us. He's building our character. He's refining us. Because perhaps God's discipline is the demonstration of his love. He loves you enough to not let you be you. So it's an awfully encouraging thing that he didn't leave us living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He made us children of his love. He's shaping us and molding us into the likeness of his son. Now, Paul has in many ways set that backdrop. The bad news of before you came to Christ, you were dead and you deserved God's wrath. And grasping that is important. Grasping that is that that black and white backdrop to the beautiful and vibrant colors with which he's going to paint uh, the wonders of life in Christ. Apart from him, it was nothing. You think that was great, getting to do your thing? You don't even know the beauties and the wonders of the life that we have in Christ. The blessings, and he's going to get into all of that. So hopefully as we look at these three verses, for those of us who are in Christ, let it be a sobering reminder to us to leave the past in the past. That that was you, it's no longer you, so let's not go back there again. God's taken me from a rough place. For those who may be here and, and you're not uh, walking in faith with the Lord, there's an old story uh, that was told of a, of a pastor who was challenged one time by a teenager. And this teenager says to the pastor, hey, you talk an awful lot about the burden of sin, but I don't really feel it. You can almost sense the cockiness in the voice. How much does sin weigh? 80 pounds? 20 pounds? I don't feel the weight of it. And the pastor responds to the teenager and he says, tell me, if I put a 400-pound weight on the chest of a dead man, would he feel it? No, he's dead. So the pastor says, so too is the man who feels no burden for sin. He's dead. So if you feel a burden for your sin. Perhaps it's an encouragement that the Lord is at work in you. A reminder that you're alive and you feel it. And maybe he's wanting to help lift that burden. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you feel that burden, then I would encourage you to do so. Look to the only one who can lift that burden because you cannot lift it on your own. So respond in faith. The faith of the one who took the and faith in the one who took the, your penalty that you deserve. He took the, the wrath of God on your behalf that you might find life in his name. That Jesus came and he lived he, and he died on the cross and he rose again. So that all who believe in him might have eternal life. That we might know God. That we might be able to put that in our past and have a future with him for all eternity. There's good news and there's bad news. This was the bad news, but next week we'll get into the good news starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved.